0: It's Emma and Shannon, and welcome back to our podcast. She's an engineer.
1: So in today's episode, we're going to talk about implicit biases and microaggressions and how to combat these in the workplace and in your individual life. So I think we'll start off with an example here to get you guys thinking about just common implicit biases and stereotypes.
0: Okay, so think of the situation. So a man and his son, they're driving on a road. And then they, unfortunately, they get into an accident. Because of the accident, they have to go to the emergency room. And they find out that the son needs surgery. However, when they get to the operating room, the surgeon actually looks at him and says, I can't operate on him. He's my son. So in this scenario, who's the surgeon? So I think many of you right now might get it. And some of you might not, right? You might have to think about it a little bit. I know that when I was first given this example, embarrassingly enough, I was also confused. So don't worry about that, right? This is a good example of like, unconsciously thinking something but wanting in your conscious mind to believe something else
1: exactly so it turns out that the surgeon is the son's mother some of you may have guessed that but also due to implicit biases some of you may have been really confused so i guess now we'll get into the definition of implicit biases
0: This is a topic that a lot of people have addressed or people have just like been thinking about and has been on the news in this past year, the first with the George Floyd incident and then more recently with the violence against AAPI. So even before these most recent events with AAPI members, AAPI being Asian American Pacific Islanders, we wanted to be able to educate everyone on implicit biases and microaggressions and how to combat that in the workplace and in your day-to-day life. So we just think it's a really important topic. And not only are we grateful for the ability to share this information with you all, but we're really grateful for the ability to actually gain this knowledge for ourselves as well.
1: Yes, I feel like I learned a lot during this research for this podcast episode, and I think it's just very important to make sure that we get the conversation started and the conversation. I guess it's really important to get the conversation started and continue it and continue to learn and evolve as a society and doing the best we can as individuals. So I guess we'll just jump right in and talk about what are implicit biases.
0: So biases in general, so the term biases, let's just define the term biases. I actually found a really great definition from the website perception.org. They do really great research on implicit biases. So that's a great resource to check out if any of you guys are interested. But biases in general are just like when you have a preference for or an aversion to, like, a certain person or a certain group of people, which means that you're basically, you're not neutral towards them, right? Like, you don't have any neutral feelings towards them. So, a bias can be a positive bias or a negative bias. So, you can say you have an affinity for, like, a certain group of people. So, like, something that I might say that I have a bias for would be college educated individuals because those are the people that are in my in-group and so I have like a positive bias towards them and which is something that I'm actually trying to work on right because that means that I automatically probably have a negative bias towards the the ones that are not in the in-group right the the individuals that are in your out group so I guess maybe I should define in-group versus out-group. So in-group is just like any group of people that are like yourself. Whether that be with race, whether that be with gender, career, any, anything that you can relate to yourself that would be within your in-group. And your out-group is just people that are not in, in your in-group. So everyone else that is excluded from the in-group. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I guess maybe we can go through the different in groups or categories that Harvard created on implicit biases,
0: and maybe that'll help describe it. So, Harvard actually created a test in which you can test if you have any implicit biases. This is important not only for yourself, but they're actually using this test as a way to assess the differences between people and groups and the different implicit biases that are present within just different demographics, different groups. So a link to the tests will be provided in the description of the episode. So if you're interested in taking the Harvard implicit bias test, you can use that link. The first few that they test are race. So race, when they test this, they, they're testing the ability to distinguish faces of European and African origin. And then the next one they test is religion. They also test disability. So this one tests the ability to recognize symbols representing abled and disabled individuals. And then another one that they test is age. So age being like young versus old. And another one that they test is actually an Asian implicit association test, So this is comparing white versus Asian American faces.
1: Another implicit bias you can have is weight, and this requires the ability to distinguish faces of people who are obese and people who are thin. And then two more, which are pretty irrelevant to probably the listeners of this podcast. The first is gender career. And this often reveals that there is a relative link between family and females and between career and males. And then there is also an implicit bias for gender science. And this reveals that there's often a link between liberal arts and females and between science and males. And there are a few other categories that are on the Harvard test. And so if you're interested in those, make sure to take the test and see where you have any implicit biases.
0: Yes, definitely. I think I personally took these tests and although it didn't, although the few that I took did not reveal any implicit biases, I think it's really helpful to identify any biases that you may have and try try to combat them in some way within yourself so that you can grow as a person. But I guess to wrap it all up, so we've talked a lot about the different groups, in-group versus out-group and bias. We'll wrap it up by just like saying the definition of an implicit bias. So basically an implicit bias is when we have attitudes towards people or associate stereotypes with them without our conscious knowledge. So a lot of people call this an unconscious bias. So you might hear us use these two terms interchangeably, unconscious bias and implicit bias.
1: Yes. And I think something else the test can reveal is it'll show you if you are in the target group for a specific implicit bias. So Emma, if you want to explain the difference between being a target and being an agent.
0: Yeah. So agent or to have agency essentially means that you're the norm, right? So the norm, this includes people who have the ability to exert power and control. So this doesn't necessarily mean that you're in the numerical majority, right? It just means like you... Your group has the power and control in that specific society. So let's say an agent in the United States might not be an agent in a different country in terms of racial groups, such as like in Asia or in Africa. And the target is just those that fall outside of the norm. So they're like the other group. Right, so they're excluded from the norm. So they're often seen as abnormal or as inferior or needing help and aren't able to exert the same power and control that the agent does and they're also often marginalized. So I think what I think what might help everyone understand agency and target status Is maybe we can go through some of the different social group identities and identify the agents and the targets for these specific social groups. So, the first social group or the first demographic that we might encounter in terms of agency versus target status would be race, right? Race is the United States where we live, has lots of different racial groups. And it's identified by research that the agents of of racial groups are those that are white. And the targets would then have to be any multiracial individuals, biracial individuals, Native Americans, and indigenous people, Latinx Americans, african americans or black people and asian americans and the next one is a little bit is like along the same realm but it's it's still defined a little bit differently so the next one would be like ethnicity so ethnicity like you wouldn't say that someone is of a white ethnicity you would say that they're european american for example So the agents of this would be European American, and then the targets would be all other ethnic groups.
1: The third one is nationality and immigration status. So if you were born in the specific country, then you would be the agent. And depending on your immigration status, if you had immigrated over to the country, then you would be the target.
0: Yeah. And another one, the fourth one would be religion or spirituality. So this is specific to our society in the U.S. So I'm not talking about the agents or the targets in other countries because those may be different, right? We're just talking about the United States of America, where we live, because it's relevant to our current situation. So the agents of religion and spirituality are actually Christians in America. I mean, that should come of like not much surprise to most people, I think. And then the targets would be any one of other religious or like spiritual statuses. So like anyone who is atheist, agnostic, Jewish, if you're Muslim, if you're Hindu, all of those.
1: So, the next one is sex and gender. So, the agent for this group would be a cisgendered male, and then everyone else would be a target. So, this includes cisgender women, transgender individuals, intersect individuals, and all other genders.
0: Yes, and then something that is kind of related to that would be the next social group identity. So that would be sexual orientation. And the agents are heterosexual individuals. And then the targets would be individuals, all other individuals with different sexual orientations, which includes gay males, lesbians, bisexual individuals, pansexual individuals, and asexual individuals.
1: So the next group is disability and non-disabled people would be the agent And then the targets would be those with any disability, including mental and physical disabilities.
0: Yes. And the next one is age. So age as a social group in general. And the agent for this would be anyone who is young, a young or middle-aged adult. And then the targets for this would be children, adolescents, and older individuals, so like old people.
1: And the last group is socioeconomic class. So the agent for this group would be upper middle class, and then the target would be lower middle class and lower class.
0: So we've just identified a couple of the different social group identities and the agent and the target statuses of each of these groups. And hopefully that helped you all... Understand uh, agent versus target status better, as well as just like the different social groups that may affect people's perception.
1: So, I guess we'll move into how being a target, you can be affected by microaggressions or other type of social discrimination in your everyday life, along with in the workplace.
0: Yeah. And so basically targets, I'll just go into like the target experience in general. So this is not to say that this is my own personal experience, but this is just a definition of the other experience or the target experience. So people who are targets will most often feel inequality. So they might have unequal access to resources or unequal access to the influential power that is need needed to lead a safe, productive, and fulfilling life. And they might also be marked by some sort of stigma, right? So stigma being like they might have disadvantages or people might look at them differently because they're part of a certain group or because they have like an unprivileged status because they're not the agent group. So now that we've described a little bit of the experience of being a target, why don't we get into microaggressions? So I think the first thing we should do is to define what microaggressions are. So just a brief definition of microaggressions. So they're really just more than just insults or insensitive comments or just generalized bad behavior from individuals. So they're really very specific because they have to do with a person's membership in a group that's discriminated against or subject to specific stereotypes. And this could be race, this could be gender, this could be sexual orientation. And what really makes them so harmful to individuals is because they happen so casually, frequently, and often without any harm intended in everyday life. So like maybe you or I could be using microaggressions or saying something, asking questions or doing some sort of act that might make someone else feel uncomfortable, but we're not really aware of it and we're not we're not doing this with the intent to harm, but we're doing this because of our implicit biases, because of our stereotyping and um, Just specific discriminations. And so I think it's really important to identify the different types of microaggressions that are out there and also combat them in our day-to-day life within ourselves and within the people that we interact with.
1: So the first type of microaggression, which is the worst type, is microassaults, and this is conscious and intentional discriminatory actions, and this includes preventing one's son or daughter from dating outside of their race or displaying white white supremacy symbols such as swastikas, I guess, on their body or flying them on a flag. After that there are micro insults which are verbal, nonverbal and environmental communications that subtly convey rudeness and insensitivity that demean a person's racial heritage or identity. So an example of this would be an employee who asked a coworker of color how she or he got their job implying they may have landed it through an affirmation act or quota system, and not really taking that person and admiring or realizing their qualifications for the job itself. And then the last type is micro invalidations, and these are communications that subtly exclude, negate, or nullify the thoughts, feelings, or experiences of a person of color. For instance, this could be white people asking Latinos where they were born or conveying the message that they are foreigners in their own land. And I think maybe also asking someone like, or assuming someone speaks a specific language just because of their race.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And like maybe another example that I've actually faced in my life is people asking me, oh, where are you really from? And even if I say I'm from New Jersey, they're like, no, like, where are you actually from? Like, and then I'm like, no, I was born in New Jersey. (laughs) But I think they're trying to get at what racial group are you part of? I think that's what people, people, or what ethnicity are you? I think that's what people are trying to get at. So maybe we can get into the different types and another different type of microaggression so that we'll just talk about uh, different types of mi- microaggressions that might happen towards any sort of marginalized group in our society. So the first one would be a racial microaggression. So a few examples could be that a a white individual would clutch their purse or check their wallet as like a black or a Latino man approaches or passes them. And there are lots of hidden messages behind these microaggressions, right? So it, it implies that they believe that this person is a criminal or they believe that this person's group like acts like criminals. And so they need to be like more careful than when they pass another white individual.
1: And another group of microaggressions is based on gender, so this could be something as simple as an assertive female manager being called, like, bossy, or something even worse, while her male counterpart is described as a forceful leader, and this just kind of assumes that women should be passive and allow men to be the decision makers something else that is common in the medical field would be a female physician wearing a stethoscope and being mistaken as a nurse. And again, I guess women stereotypically occupy nurturing and not decision-making roles. And this would lead someone to maybe assume that the, the woman is a nurse. And then I feel like this one is fairly common unfortunately to most women but this would be whistles or cat calls from men as a woman walks down the street so the hidden message under this is the men are just looking at the women as a sexual object and it's just for their own enjoyment of their body and appearance
0: Yes. And the last group that we're going to talk about today is a sexual orientation microaggression. So an example of this could be a person uses the term gay to describe a movie that they didn't like. This indicates that they're associating being gay with negative and undesirable characteristics. Another one could be that two gay men hold hands in public and they're told not to flaunt their sexuality. And I feel like this happens quite a bit. Like I've heard many individuals who have received these types of statements or who like say these types of things who tell people, oh, why do they have to display their affection, display their PDA. Whereas if they saw a heterosexual couple doing that, they wouldn't say that, or they wouldn't, they wouldn't feel this or say it or even say anything to them. And this would indicate that same sex displays of affection are abnormal and they're offensive. And they would like these individuals to keep it private and to themselves, which, you know, no one should be, barred from displaying their affection to their significant other whether that be in a heterosexual or homosexual relationship
1: yeah and i guess moving into how these microaggressions can affect people i guess some people out there might just think of them as seemingly small and sometimes innocent offenses they can take a toll on the mental health of the recip- recipient's Um, This still can lead to anger and depression and even lower work productivity and problem-solving abilities.
0: Yeah, they can also affect the work or the school environment. They can make it even more hostile and they can validate and perpetuate stereotype threats which is the fear of confirming existing stereotype about one's group which definitely affects individuals whether they be in school or at work their confidence and their achievement because they believe that their achievement isn't isn't valid or they it like lowers their confidence right and Honestly, like if you just imagine yourself, if you were to face these microaggressions, if someone were to tell you that you don't belong, you don't belong in the society, you don't belong in, in this country, or you don't belong in this specific workplace because you're a specific gender or you're a specific race, like how would you feel? Like you feel like you're just constantly subject to like insults and you're always like worried about the next thing that someone else is going to do, right? The next thing that someone else is going to say, the next person that you're going to have to face, and it gets tiring. And actually, researchers have found that they can even cause physical health problems. They can manifest physically.
1: So like you mentioned, implicit biases can affect productivity in the workplace. And one study that evaluated 3,500 respondents consisting of men, women, African Americans, Caucasians, <laughs> Asians, and Hispanics found that of those who were experiencing workplace bias, 33% of them felt alienated, and 34% felt like they. Were withholding ideas and solutions and eighty percent of those would not refer people to their employer. So it's also affecting the companies and overall innovation of the of our society itself. And over time feelings of isolation, alienation, and withholding of these ideas can take a toll and some of the stress put on our system could result in low or no emotional engagement, increased stress-related illnesses, increased accidents in the workplace, above-average employee turnover, and lower client satisfaction.
0: Wow. Yeah, I definitely think that workplaces really need to put an emphasis on reducing these implicit biases and reducing the effect that it has on their employees so how do we actually prevent implicit biases in the workplace?
1: So there are three different areas where you could work on preventing implicit biases in the workplace. The first comes from when you are recruiting employees and something, very, something as simple as including a diversity statement in the organization's job application or on their website to make sure that it is their mission to include diversity and it's their commitment to do this so I feel like this could be very helpful and also this company could be seen as a welcoming place for different types of people.
0: Of course, they have to back these statements up with action, though. So they can't just place this at the bottom of their job listing and, like, hope that it helps Helps to reduce the, bias, the implicit biases in their workplace. They actually have to, to follow this up with, with some sort of action, with some sort of actual, like, change in their environment.
1: Yeah, another thing a company could do is vet their job postings for suggestive language. And using extremely masculine words can also detract diverse candidates by lowering the perception that they would belong in the organization or that they would be getting the job. So something as simple as writing like he and she or just making things. Using gender-neutral terms in the job posting can increase diversity. And then lastly, widening the network when recruiting. So this could be tapping into existing professional organizations that are held or that have diverse communities itself when trying to recruit for a position and making sure they're reaching out to a broader network of people.
0: That's definitely very important. And the next step to preventing implicit biases in the workplace is definitely in your hiring practices. So there was actually a study that was done that found that whites receive 50% more calls for interviews than Black job candidates with the exact same resumes. And they've actually found this within research as well. And they've done studies relating females to males, and they found that males did receive way more callbacks than females did, even with the same exact qualifications and same exact resumes, with the only difference being the candidate's name. So one way to do this is that companies can script their interviews. And so I think this is something that's actually pretty relevant now. And especially relevant in like the med school process. So what's happening now is more and more companies are doing one-way interviews and virtual interviews where you're not really talking to an interviewer, but you're talking, you're recording yourself. And in doing so, everyone gets asked the same questions and you have the same opportunity to answer these questions. So I think that is a definite big plus to these sort of one-way interviews because interviewers, I mean, they naturally will create a warmer or more casual climate with candidates that they share similar experiences with because they're in the same group. And so this natural instinct can give certain groups of people a certain advantage because they can feel more comfortable in the such in the situation. And so to avoid this, companies can set predetermined interview questions and pay attention to the setting to ensure a level playing field for all candidates and also score candidates with a specific rubric on a predetermined scale so that the interviewers aren't naturally biased towards those who are more similar to them.
1: Yeah. And another thing that companies can do in the hiring process is diversify the search committee. And this would be making sure to include members from underrepresented groups just to help look for those candidates who are also underrepresented and make sure that they have a voice in the actual searching for employees and lastly, in the hiring process, it's very good to make sure that there are clear compensation policies for those who are applying to the job, making sure that they know that everyone, regardless of race or gender, will be paid equally.
0: Yeah, and to also combat this, there's a sort of thing that happens where women are less likely And because they're usually or they perceive that they're judged more harshly than men when they're negotiating their salary, women Mm -hmm. tend to negotiate less. And I think like we've seen that within our friend group, within ourselves and our friend groups. And so to combat this like inequality between men and women in terms of negotiation, then the company could institute a no negotiation policy so that they can avoid bias in this way.
1: Yeah, and then moving on to the last section, which a company can improve diversity or just increase awareness through different programs that they put on. So the first could be cultural awareness training. And this is just to make sure all their current employees understand and appreciate their colleagues and are culturally competent, and it could make sure that employees have a safe place to learn about unconscious biases, how to recognize their own biases, and how to develop practices to reduce biases.
0: Another one could be is related, but it is creating an inclusive work in environment. So. I feel like this just means that individuals need to feel like they're welcome into a space. And so this means that you can make sure that, you know, all individuals are represented on your social media platforms, on your website, within your recruitment handouts even. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Another thing companies could do is to create mentoring programs. And I feel like a lot of companies already do this with their newer hires, but I think it's also very important to have a mentor who maybe, sh- who maybe shares some of the same target qualities as you so they can understand you and maybe what you need from the company and how to make sure you're performing at your best in the workplace. And then lastly, I think it's really important for companies to just assess where they are and what they can really work on. And I think a big part of this is getting feedback from their actual employees and making sure that if anything is a problem, they're addressing it and continuing to grow and evolve as society changes and as other issues come up in the company.
0: Yes, And now that we've discussed combating implicit biases in the workplace and how companies can do this, let's talk about how if you've experienced microaggressions or if you have some sort of implicit bias or anything, how do you actually combat this as an individual in your day-to-day life? So first of all, I would like to say that sometimes it might not be appropriate or it might not be safe for you to respond to a microaggression. So you should assess your situation and make sure that it's safe and that you are not in harm's way. you won't be you know violently attacked because in that case the best thing for you to do is just get out of the situation either call emergency services if needed but just get out of the situation. Don't worry about combating microaggressions or combating someone else's implicit biases when you're not safe. So this is after that, right? So once you've decided that you can respond and that it won't harm you to respond, whether that be mental or physically, to this microaggression, what do you even say, right? And so people have done research and they actually use the term microintervention, to address confronting a microaggression. And so they've actually suggested a list of prepared statements that you might want to follow up the microaggression with. So first of all, you can ask for more clarification. You could say, could you say more about what you mean by that? Because asking someone to actually explain their microaggression, explain their statement, might make them really think more about like, wait, why did I just say that? Do I really believe that? Or it can make them think about, wait, what I just said, I don't think that really makes sense. And so this is a nicer way of definitely encountering this microaggression because you want to change this person's behavior. You want to make them really think about their behavior going forward, right? When they're encountering other people, when they're encountering you.
1: Yeah, something else you can do to confront a microaggression could be to separate the intent from the impact. So I feel like you could do something similar towards someone who maybe just doesn't know any better or is naive to the situation. So you could tell them, I know you didn't realize this, but when you said blah, 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 it was hurtful and offensive because, and then you could state your reason. And then you could even maybe propose maybe next time you could use this different language or behavior and just kind of correct it I guess, corrected their language and hopefully will take it respectfully and be like, oh, okay, maybe I can use that next time. I didn't realize it was offensive.
0: Yes. And then the last one that we're going to talk about today would be to share your own process. So maybe share your own process for why or how you combat your own implicit biases in real life, right? Or you reduce the microaggressions that you are saying or acting on in your own life. So this could be, I noticed that you did this thing, right? And I used to do or say that too, but then I learned whatever you learned and just explain your thought process. And I think a good and important part of combating microaggressions is actually not to like, these are, so if you've noticed, all of these are very like nice ways of saying this. It's not attacking the person for saying this or saying that, oh my gosh, you're such a bad person, I can't believe you would say that. No, it's you're basically helping whoever it is, the aggressor, understand that this is a behavior that I've noticed and I know it's not okay and I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but you really want people to hear what you're saying, right? You want them to understand that they're not under attack for their comment. And you don't want to make them defensive because when they're defensive, that's when they're not really open to changing their behavior because they're then they're just like thinking about like justifying their behavior or defending their own behavior because obviously they themselves know and you probably know that they're not inherently bad people.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, I think that wraps up everything we wanted to talk about in this episode. We're going to now transition over to our coffee time and share a couple stories we received from our friends who have experienced these biases in the workplace and in their life.
0: Hey guys, now it's coffee time. So in coffee time, as Shannon said previously, we're first going to go into a microaggression or a bias that I actually have experienced in my life, and then we're going to go into a couple of our friends' examples. So something that I've experienced is actually that someone has actually asked me in person or told me in person that my English is really good. And this person knows that I was born in the US and that I do belong here, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. In In my mind, right, it's hard to, it's hard for me to comprehend how someone could think that because I've always grown up in the US and I've gone through the American school system and I think that I'm pretty fluent in English like it's my native language it's my first language so you know I'm naturally good at it so yeah I explained to this person this individual that actually yes I was born and raised in New Jersey and so shouldn't shouldn't that make sense and that was my response right And this individual still did not quite understand why this comment didn't really make sense to me because they said that, oh, well, like, you know, I think usually people like you are not that good at English. And I'm like, well, (laughs) then who is? Like, I was born here. I went through the American school system. Doesn't make sense to me. But now after reading through microaggressions and learning more about implicit biases, I think I can understand, like, how maybe I should have responded to that further, helped them understand, like, why this statement was not okay. And actually a statement that I've gotten from someone else after relaying their story to them was like, well, how were they supposed to know that you were born here? So that's like, first of all, this individual that said this statement doesn't even need to know that I was born here, right? Or that I grew up here. Like their comment is just inherently stating that i don't belong here right like so they would look at someone else who is white right and assume automatically assume they're good at english or that they're fluent in english and that they do belong here but they look at someone like me who is asian american and assume assume something different and i think that just like says a lot about in implicit biases and inherent just like inherent automatic judgments that we have against other people. And I'm not holding this against this person, because I know that a lot of this is a result of like the environment that we're brought up in, or the culture that we experience, or maybe the lack of exposure to those of different ethnic groups and like how to treat these people. And so I think it's just like a lack of education. And I think that's why we're doing this, right? To educate others and to educate ourselves on how we should be treating people and how we can hopefully start to change uh, the thoughts that we have in our mind. Because this experience really, really hit me really hard because this was like more recent, but It really affirmed like the way that I felt when I was in elementary school or in middle school when I grew up in a town that was in an environment that was mostly majority white and I just really didn't feel like I belonged and it made me think back to those times where I was like wow I really wished that I was white and that shouldn't be something that I should be thinking right I should be proud of my heritage be proud of my culture not be afraid to bring my friends home or not be afraid to, like, bring ethnic foods to school for fear of, like, being called out or anything like that. So, yeah, I think this just speaks a lot to, you know, minorities in this country just, like, feeling like they don't belong.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So one of our friends shared a microaggression experience that she had. So, and this person said two experiences slash microaggressions that all share have to do with the phrases that end in foreign Asian. To preface, I am half Chinese. A lot of these, a lot of times these microaggressions can look like backhanded compliments, which makes it hard to explain to the person why it's hurtful and offensive. An acquaintance my age once told me, oh wow, you are so beautiful for an Asian. I usually am not into Asians at all. Another encounter was with an older woman in an academic setting who said, all these Asians usually come from China, get into these scientific labs, and just do ABC. There's no creativity or free thinking there, but good for you for doing this cool project." The worst thing is that these things just roll off the tongue. There's no, oh goodness, I'm sorry that came out wrong. I shouldn't have phrased something like that. It's just commonplace for people and that's when you know that racism is alive and well. These comments make you feel so small and I am the type of person where it takes a few hours for these comments to really sink in and take weight. While these things seem small, they can definitely accumulate.
0: I think this experience is really powerful, right? It can really shape how you feel within a workplace setting or within just like any social environment. You're always looking out for like the next comment or recovering from the previous comment. Okay, and now we'll just share a few audio clips from our friends who are going to talk about their own experiences with discrimination and microaggressions.
2: So a time I experienced a microaggression uh, was after my freshman year of college. I was working in upstate New York as a waitress at a YMCA up there. Uh, This was a part of a leadership training program I was in with my church, so During one of my shifts in the kitchen, an older woman came up to me, a guest who was staying at the Silver Bay YMCA. She thanked me for my service, and she came and touched my face and was curious about what my race was, and she also mentioned that I was pretty for a dark-skinned girl. At the moment I got that, what she thought was a compliment, I was taken aback because I was shocked that she hasn't seen anybody that looked like me or came from my ethnicity. But also the fact that she what she said she thought was okay to say in the form that she said it. And uh yeah, I just didn't realize at the moment that it was a microaggression because she said it in a very kind way and it was wrapped up in a compliment. But after processing it a little bit later, I realized that what she said was a form of microaggression. So yeah, that was uh, a very weird and awkward experience for me. But it was also a learning moment to realize that there's people in the world that just really haven't seen people that look different than them and that that's a possibility. And that was my first experience uh, going through something like that.
3: Hi, guys. This is Tiffany. As a female engineer for the past five months, there have already been a few instances of microaggression and discrimination that I want to share with you. I'm one of two female engineers and five total women in a plant of 150 employees, clearly in the minority. I'm often asked if I'm related to the plant manager and if that's how I got my job. Then there are the crude jokes and remarks that are come to my face as well as behind my back. I rarely get the chance to do physical work on my own, mostly because no one lets me. I think they're trying to be courteous, but it makes me feel a little incompetent. And then there was the time that I got a package addressed to a Mr. Tiffany. That was an interesting one. All of this is frustrating to me. But even more frustrating is when I'm told that that's just how it is as a female engineer. Learn to take it in stride. One day, I hope these things are no longer the norm. And a Ms. Engineer is just as likely as a Mr. Until then, I'll be doing my best to gracefully correct
1: mistakes and be an example of what women can do in engineering. Thanks, guys. So thank you all for listening this week. If you have any comments or feedback on this episode, make sure to reach out to us and we'll see you guys again in two weeks.
0: Yes, and thank you so much to our friends for responding to our very last-minute survey and recording yourselves. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to hear about all your experiences with microaggressions and discrimination and implicit biases. We are very, very welcome to feedback. We know that we're not experts on the topic, but hopefully we did it justice. Bye! Bye.